From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Decades in the making, now a dream come true. A place for culture, connection, and community officially opens on the CU Boulder campus. How can we use knowledge to enhance our lives, but also the lives of future generations? So I'm really big in terms of Afrofuturism. So I'm trying to leave a legacy in this center. It's an Afrofuturist center. Then Colorado Republican Representative Ken Buck talks about taking on big tech. Yeah, when you have 94% of all searches on Google, that's not the free market. That's, that's a monopoly. I think people make their own choices, and, and uh, these companies do their best to manipulate those choices. Plus, why he says banning TikTok isn't censorship, and the one thing he says people can do to disrupt the system. The vast majority of CPR's funding comes from our community, and over half of that comes from individual contributions. That's why your gift at any amount matters. Start your all-important membership now at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Shonda Thomas-Whitfield. For one man, it's a dream come true after nearly 20 years in the making. And for the community, it's a place for connection, culture, and inclusion. The Center for African and African American Studies, also known as the CAUSE, officially launched this month at the University of Colorado Boulder. I was there for the big event and spoke with the man behind the center's creation, Raylan Rabaka. To officially launch it, it's a dream long time coming, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, I've been here for nearly 20 years. I can't think of a campus-wide Black History Month celebration that the University of Colorado Boulder has had. And I think that's the whole point of this center. When I went to the administration and said that this center would organize the Martin Luther King Jr. programming, we would organize the Black History Month programming, we would organize the Juneteenth programming, Black graduation. There's so many things that happened at other public universities that have been absent at the University of Colorado Boulder. And now I'm trying to create a home away from home for black students, for black faculty, black staff, uh, and to reintroduce us to African culture, to be perfectly honest with you, because uh, we are African Americans, right? We go around saying that, but we may not have any knowledge of Africa. So this is a space where people between 18 to 25 year olds, the students can come and study African culture, right? African-American culture, because we don't even sometimes learn about our own culture. You can see what they're doing in Florida, banning African-American studies. So uh, I spoke to the governor this morning of our state, uh, Jared Polis, called me this morning and congratulated. Uh, It's just really incredible how Colorado is embracing African-American studies when other states around the country are banning African-American studies. So this is something that I'm very proud of the great state of Colorado. Professor Rabaka has been working to make this center a reality for the past 18 years. It has three program areas, research, the arts, and student services. I'm trying to get them to understand, like, what does it mean to be an intellectual? And how can we use knowledge to enhance our lives, but also the lives of future generations? So I'm really big in terms of Afrofuturism. So I'm trying to leave a legacy in this center. It's an Afrofuturist center. 
You see what I'm saying? Like, we really, really want to sort of project ourselves into the future. But Marcus Garvey said, if you don't know your past, you'll never know your future. We got to know our past first. When you think about this center, what do you want it to mean to these students here? A home away from home. I think more than anything else, people cannot understand what it means to be um, one of only 900 students on a campus with 36,000 students. My students have been telling me about their experiences of anti-black racism, their experiences of microaggressions, racial trauma. I could go on and on and on. So now, one of the programs in the brand new center, the Center for African and African American Studies, we have a black mental health and wellness program where we will be offering therapy two or three times a week. And I'm talking about black therapy, right? So like we, somebody that understands racial trauma, somebody that understands microaggressions will come and be able to talk to them um, and to help with some healing. There's been a lot of hurt. So this center, what I want this to represent to the students, a healing. So we need to acknowledge the hurt, but we also need to focus on the healing part. And I think that's how we rescue and reclaim our humanity and never allow anybody to take our humanity from us. CU Boulder graduate Ruth Wodemichael co-founded the center while she was a student. I hope the cause can be a place where community members can continue coming for community events and continue connecting with, with black students, with black faculty in ways that just aren't really provided through the institution outside of the cause. And because we see such a huge turnout today, I'm sure that'll continue happening by building these relationships and, and through networking. Um, this is a huge opportunity for Boulder community members, see Boulder community members to like to engage or like even for students to to network professionally and figure out what they want to do like after graduation or like volunteer opportunities. I mean, this is a huge connector and bridge builder. Esther Amato and Naomi Shungu are freshmen at CU. They're both majoring in integrated physiology and are natives of the Democratic Republic of Congo. And when I came here, it was very difficult for me to feel connected with the school or with the community. It was just the first few weeks was very difficult. And once we discovered the cause, we came here like all the time. This is like our hangout spot. Then like I started working with them, not just like going to the cause, but I also work with them, seeing what they're doing, being more involved with like black student. It gave me hope to like stay here. Like on my job, I felt uncomfortable. In classes, I felt uncomfortable. All over campus, I felt uncomfortable. And this is the number one place where I'm like comfortable and I can be myself, I can be Esther. It's helped a lot because it feels like home, uh, only in the sense uh, Boulder is like a little bit like uh, unfamiliar, but whenever we come to the cause, we can just kind of chill, do homework, watch movies, um, share like about our experiences and just, uh, you know, like vibe with our friends. And it's like, like it's like, all of us are kind of living the same um, thing and it just kind of feels like we've built our own family that we got to choose so it's been really nice they've definitely helped me at least like with my like classes not only like like educationally but also mentally because I, whenever like I'm struggling I could just ask like uh, my friend Ola or Esther like to help with my homework and they help me but whenever like I'm struggling um, in a sense where I don't fit in my other classes like they're always really encouraging so it's really nice. I think that's like the best part of the, the cause like the people here are always so like encouraging. Those are sentiments echoed by another one of the student co-founders Isaiah Chavis. I think it means home. It represents a home base. My hope for it, right? I can't. I couldn't tell you what I what I know will happen, but my hope for what this will feel like is that it, it's a a place and a foundation 
for new innovation to take place, for new creativity to form, for people to come out as alumni as we did and be able to dominate and innovate in new industries where the, the longevity of what we're building is far beyond the cause. This is the, the central point, so I want students to come in with intention and have a plan and just say, hey, the plan is to be together, the plan is to build something new. So I'm hoping they're excited. I'm hoping they utilize the tools and, and help build out the resources. I first got to check out the cause in the fall when the school year began. So, Dr. Rabaka, do you hope that this center will be a draw to get more students of color, particularly um, black and African-American students? Absolutely. Yes, students, but also staff. Even last year, I met with over half a dozen uh, black faculty that different departments were attempting to recruit. Chandra, it goes even further. For all of the sports fans, it's going to help see you get uh, higher ranked players if Mm. they know right, that there's a center here that's offering student programming, student services five days a week, mm-hmm. that would make all the difference in the world. Why am I saying this? Because the University of Texas has had a black cultural center since 1969. University of California, Berkeley has had one of these since the 60s. Ohio State, I can just, all of our peer institutions, Michigan, I can, all of our peer institutions have had these since the 60s, since the 60s. And here it is, Hmm, 2000s, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm about to get hyped. But at least we got it. Now, let me say, this is something CU Boulder did right. As you mentioned, most universities established these centers decades ago, and CU has centers for Latino and Latin American studies and also indigenous studies and Asian studies. Why did it take so long? African Americans have a saying, we're the last hired and the first fired. So... Yeah, I think it's very easy to marginalize a group of less than 900 students. Um, only about 2% of the student population are black students. Faculty, I think we have about three dozen. I think that being in African-American studies and doing it 24-7 is actually quite therapeutic for me. Like right now, I'm beginning to feel a sense yeah. of belonging And let's be honest, some of the alumni said, listen, uh, Dr. Vaca, professor, I've never given one dime since I left CU Boulder, Mm -hmm. but I will give to the cause. Hmm. They said, I will not donate to the, why would I donate to a place that traumatized me, blah, 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 blah. I felt erased. But now with this new center, this is what institutional transformation looks like. So a lot of people have been tap dancing around it. They know that things need to change here. But what do we do to actually make it change? Raylan Rabaka is the founding director of The Cause, the Center for African and African-American Studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. It officially launched this month. My thanks to CPR reporter Tony Gorman for helping out with this segment. When we come back, Colorado's Ken Buck takes on Big Tech. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Many Western stories are immigration stories. In her new book, Western Journeys, author Tiao Lim Go explores her journey from Singapore to Denver and asks questions for all Westerners. What it means to be Native, what it means to be an immigrant, what it means to pastoral. Join Colorado Matters as we meet the author in a virtual event Thursday the 23rd. Free tickets at CPR.org slash turn the page. With support from Shining Mountain Waldorf School. Free market conservative Ken Buck is an unlikely champion to take on big tech. 
but it's an issue the Republican representative from Colorado has been leading in Congress. CPR's Washington, D.C. reporter Caitlin Kim spoke with Buck about his new book on this very issue. Why did you want to write this book? And more importantly, what are you hoping it accomplishes? Well, I wanted to write it because there are uh, a number of issues that I wanted to make the public aware of that I learned about during our investigation of big tech and the legislative process last year uh, on big tech. And what I'm hoping to accomplish is to get the public uh, involved in this uh, process and, and hopefully gain support for some of these bills. I will say I thought one of the more interesting things about this is how much of a skeptic you were in the beginning, you know, talking about that as you were driving to the hearing in Boulder. What was it about that Boulder hearing that clicked for you? You know what it really was, was I I went into that hearing thinking that the free market would address the issues that we were uh, facing in this area. And I left recognizing that there isn't a free market, that these monopolies have uh, dominated the marketplace and are acting in an anti-competitive way to continue to dominate the marketplace. And they're their dominance in the business marketplace also impacts the marketplace of ideas. That sort of goes to some of the things I wanted to drill down on. The first is the sort of the anti-competitiveness in the digital marketplace and digital advertising. For some people who, who see that just as sort of competition, you know, what's wrong with it? Isn't this sort of just the free market forces in action? Yeah, when you have 94% of all searches on Google, uh, that's not the free market. That's That's a monopoly. And um, when uh, Gmail, and and this is what Google does and and these other companies do in in all situations, Uh, there's a company named ProtonMail, and it has an encrypted email service. And and when someone from ProtonMail sends someone from Gmail an email, that email goes or went to spam for a significant period of time, like a year. And Gmail did that to try to uh, punish people or uh, get people to drop their Proton Mail account because they couldn't get their mail through to, to Gmail account users. It's that kind of discrimination that's not just free markets going to take care of this. That kind of discrimination is clear anti-competitive behavior that is in a whole new area of our economy. It's one thing if we talked about oil monopolies or bank monopolies or steel monopolies, uh, this type of monopoly is on information and uh, the way they do it, uh, the the case law interpreting the Sherman Act from the 1800s and the Clayton Act from 1913 is really out of date and that's why Congress needs to act You talk about it as a monopoly of information, but like I felt like the arguments when it came to the monopoly of advertising, the monopoly of which books or like pots you wanted to buy that Amazon can can do that. Those arguments were, I thought, incredibly strong. And that was one of the things you talked about, like with the jump rope um, case that you mentioned. And when it comes to that, like I think when people think of, you know, I want to buy a pot, I'll go search for it online and things come up. Isn't it just sort of Here's my, isn't it just choices in the end? People make their own choices? No, I think people make their own choices, and, and uh, these companies do their best to manipulate those choices. For example, uh, Apple entered into an agreement uh, with Google where 
Google as the default browser on their iPhone. So for people who aren't technically savvy like me, you've got to figure out how to delete Google as your browser and put DuckDuckGo or Bing or some other browser on your phone. A lot of people are, are, are lazy or don't care, and, and they just accept uh, that fact. And, and that kind of agreement between these monopolies is, is just self-perpetuating monopoly conduct. So and what I thought was interesting was from this idea of the anti-competitiveness, the monopoly within the digital marketplace and advertising space, you sort of transitioned to this idea of the marketplace of ideas, which you, you've mentioned. Can you explain that to me? Because for me, there is a difference between you know goods and services versus like speech. And that there's a difference between what Apple does and what Facebook does. So how does this idea of the marketplace of idea work in your explaining of it? Sure. So let's talk about Apple. Um, I'm assuming you rec- you agree that, that Facebook is in the business of speech. Um, but, but let's look at Apple. Um, they had an app on their app store uh, called HK Map that the uh, protesters in Hong Kong used to avoid the police and, and be able to protest without being arrested or uh, 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 beaten, frankly. And uh, the Chinese Communist Party demanded that Apple take that down, and Apple did take that down. So the, the act of protesting is speech. Apple was willing to uh, uh, go along with the Chinese Communist Party and remove an app that allowed people to express themselves uh, without being arrested, without uh, harassment. So, so there's a clear link between what Apple does and, and speech. The other thing is, you know, other example is um, after the January 6th riots in the Capitol, uh, Apple the next day, I think it was, maybe two days, but I think it was the next day, took Parler off of its app store. Now, uh, Parler was used by some people um, to communicate during the January 6th riots and before the January 6th riots, but so was Twitter and so was Facebook. Those were not considered conservative uh, uh, social media platforms, and so Apple didn't take them down. It took down the conservative social media platform. Within days, uh, Amazon Web Services acted, and Facebook acted, and everybody decided we're taking down this conservative speech platform, um, and they did. You were talking about it being a conservative platform, which I think Parler was or is, but there was also the idea of moderation, right? Part of the attraction to Parler was that it didn't moderate to the extent that Facebook and Twitter and other platforms do. And I guess this goes to my question, you know, you equate censorship by the big tech companies to like sort of oppressive countries like China, but it's still a private company, right? You sign a term of a service agreement that includes moderation. How does that gel. That's always been sort of the big question for me in my mind when it comes to sort of these free speech arguments. So uh, who's, who's listening to this conversation, Caitlin? Public radio listeners. How, how would you feel if you were a newspaper reporter and someone came in and moderated our discussion? How would you feel if you were on cable news and, and somebody came in and moderated our discussion? Moderating is, is just censoring. Uh, the left doesn't like to use the term censoring, but it's exactly what it is. And um, th- the idea that uh, this is a private company, well, it's a private company that has received huge benefits from the government. 
Um, and we know uh, that that uh, these companies, all four of them, have coordinated with the government. When when uh, the Biden administration didn't like what people were saying about masks or vaccines, there was no uh, open debate on the subject. It was, quote unquote, moderated. It was censored. It was taken off of platforms so that people couldn't get information uh, that they wanted. And, you know, if there's false information out there, a buyer beware. People should be looking at a variety of sources and making decisions on their own health, on the health of their community, on, uh, you know, you and I uh, look at some of these uh, folks who are um, on the right and left, frankly, and they don't have credibility with us and and they don't have credibility with with most Americans. And so to say we're going to protect you from, uh, you know, extreme viewpoints uh, we're, we're getting into a very dangerous area in this country, and, and it's, it's something that I think when you have a monopoly on the flow of information, it's even more dangerous. I can, I can watch a cable news show, um, and um, I can be deeply offended, and I can switch channels, and I can watch another cable news show, and I agree with it. Um, it, we don't try to moderate newspaper uh, uh, speech, you know, pr- the, the freedom of press. Um, we, we have a variety of sources. And so if we have a variety of Facebooks, if we have a variety of uh, Googles, um, I think it, we are a much healthier country uh, given that. You announced that you and um, Senator Hawley are introducing a bill for the U.S. government to ban TikTok over national security concerns. I'm just curious, though, for people who are wondering, you know, what does some like 20-year-old college student who's, you know, on TikTok, what does that have to do? Because like that also kind of smacks up government banning a platform, right? Which is something that you complain about China doing. So how do you square that? Yeah, because I'm not banning TikTok because of the content that's in TikTok. I'm banning TikTok because it's control, or I'm uh, seeking to ban TikTok because it is controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. They are gathering information on Americans that they will use in a cyber war against America. And the 20-year-old kid right now uh, that, that you mentioned um, isn't thinking about, well, what happens if someone has my date of birth? What happens, you know, because someone is gonna say happy birthday to them um, on, on TikTok, and bam, now they have the date of birth of that particular user. What happens if someone is uh, talking about the, the bank that they use and all that information, and people don't recognize, uh, you know, we, we have fought land wars, we have fought land and sea wars, we have fought land, sea, and air wars. The future wars in, uh, on this planet are going to be fought in space and they're gonna be fought um, by cyber. And if we don't seek to protect Americans um, that don't understand and, and don't understand what the Chinese Communist Party is doing, we're making a big mistake. So I'm not saying that TikTok is too far to the left or TikTok is too far to the right or TikTok is, uh, has content that, that is uh, dangerous and needs moderating. I, I don't care at all about the, the, the content. I think that having a Chinese Communist Party presence in this country on a platform like that is dangerous. And all I'm asking for is the platform has to be purchased by a U.S. company. Now, Caitlin, understand something. China does not let American companies in China talk about any subject they want to talk about. And, And yet people here say, oh, you know, it's part of our freedom to let the Chinese spy on us. It shouldn't be. 
And we should be doing everything we can to say to China, you either open your markets and allow us to participate in your marketplace in the same way you want to participate in our marketplace, or uh, we're going to take action against your companies. You know, one of the things I find interesting about your book is that you do list a bunch of things you think individuals can do, you know, themselves to sort of fight back on big tech. And I'm, I'm just curious, you list like six or seven, but if you had to say a top three, what were three of those things you think people should be doing? The top one that would drive these companies crazy, Caitlin, the top one, and I just identified myself, it was not very tech savvy, but if people turn off the tracking devices on their phone, these companies would go crazy because a big part of their advertising appeal is that they know where people are going, they know what people are buying, they know what people are searching for, um, and knowing where you are at all times because you've left your Google Maps on or you've left your Waze on, um, that is uh, actually critical for these companies. And frankly, it's creepy. So I, I would just give you one example, and, and that is turn off your uh, tracking devices and uh, it would have a, a big impact on these companies. Ken Buck, a Republican who represents the state's fourth con- congressional district, which includes the eastern plains of Colorado, as well as Greeley, Longmont, Parker, and Castle Rock. He spoke with CPR's Washington, D.C. reporter, Caitlin Kim. Ken Buck's new book is Crushed, Big Tech's War on Free Speech. He's been handing it out to his GOP colleagues, but there are signs that Republican House leadership still is not on board. Buck was the ranking member of the antitrust subcommittee last Congress, but was passed over for the chair of the subcommittee this Congress in favor of a Republican who voted against the antitrust measures Buck has backed. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. To all of our supporters, thank you so much for your ongoing partnership with Colorado Public Radio. You know that a free and independent press is vital to the health of our democracy. Even during challenging times, CPR is dedicated to covering stories and issues with the depth, diversity, and thoughtfulness that you have come to depend on. However you choose to support CPR in the days and months ahead, please know that you are truly appreciated. You make it possible. The transition from adolescence to adulthood can be rough. A show at the Denver Center explores its ups and downs for girls and women, through comedy. Here's CPR's arts and culture reporter, Eden Lane. Co-creators and co-stars Barbara Gehring and Linda Klein began this show at Denver's Avenue Theater as a one-night-only performance. Now, 15 years later, they're returning to the DCPA's Garner Galleria, the place that elevated their show into the phenomenon it has become. Linda Klein. We learned early on that the secret comedy of women is not about the people on stage. It's 100% about the women who are in the audience or the people in the audience. It's like their show, and it's 100%, like, they cre- they co-create it with us. In the tradition of Lucille Ball and Carol Burnett, these women take the audience through the tumultuous time of growing up as a girl, using the backdrop set of a childhood room, all the way through coming of age and the challenges of womanhood. But its path forward wasn't always so clear. But then their show caught someone's eye, former Denver Center CEO Randy Weeks, who died in 2014. Barbara Gehring. When he found out about the show and other producers wanting it, he was like, well, why aren't we looking at it? And that was it. He booked it sight unseen, and he was the first man to see the show in the booth. Here's the CEO 
of the Denver Center in the light booth watching the show, texting a scenic designer about what is coming down the road for the Denver Center. And she goes, where are you? I'm in the audience. And they're like, it was this the best memory of Randy up there in the booth, the first guy to ever watch our show. During this run, the show has a special Galentine's event to support the American Heart Association. And Barbara Gehring's daughter, Isabella, a legacy high school junior, joins in. People get to see the show. And then afterwards, there's a talk back with Linda and my mom. It's just going to be this really fun night where people get to see the show. They get to be around all these people with similar interests and have fun together. And it goes towards a really, really great cause. The Secret Comedy of Women plays the Denver Center for the Performing Arts Galleria Theater through March 5th. I'm Eden Lane, CPR News. It's Black History Month, and with Valentine's Day around the corner, the Colorado Jazz Repertory Orchestra pays tribute to one of the most beloved voices and sentimental crooners of the 20th century. Nat King Cole recorded dozens of hits over his 30-year career, and his trio inspired many small jazz ensembles. The Colorado Jazz Repertory Orchestra is hosting a program featuring some Cole favorites like Unforgettable, Nature Boy, and Route 66. The concert is tomorrow at Parsons Theater in North Glen. Let's hear the ensemble performing a love song from another jazz great, Duke Ellington's Prelude to a Kiss. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. You're with Colorado Matters from listener-supported CPR News and KRCC.